Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Good morning. We have, uh, we're going to look at John chapter 1 over the next couple of weeks in a little series called Unparalleled. Uh, John 1, 1 to 18 is the prologue of John. It's John's sort of gives us the meaning of Christmas without the Christmas story. And so it's John's way of talking about Christmas, which really is the essence of Christianity. And what he says, what he says is totally unique. Unique and distinctive. And you might say unparalleled. There's no philosophy, there's no religion, there's no cult uh, that makes the claims that John 1 makes. It separates Christianity from every other religious or spiritual teaching. So, uh, and at a time, I think, when people are sort of, you know, likely to have spiritual thoughts this time of year, uh, grasping for hope and meaning, you know, to all of life. Um, but their, their tendency is to just put all religion into the same bucket, just put it all in the same place, same category. And this would be a monumental mistake, according to the New Testament. Christianity is not just a slight variation on any other spiritual thinking or religion. It's actually a very radical departure from it. Um, Jared Wilson said this, Make no mistake, in the public marketplace of religious conversation, in the entire world of spiritual and unspiritual, religious, irreligious, theistic, deistic, polytheistic, atheistic, political, moral, liberal, conservative, moderate, or whatever kind of ideas, Christianity is a gr- is at a great advantage. You know, what's the advantage of Christianity? Because in the midst of this murky, multi-ideological fog, Christianity stands alone and above. A solitary lighthouse shining real light. The truth claims of Christianity are unlike those of any other religion, philosophy, or system in the world. Do you know that? Have you looked close enough to see that? So what does John say? What's John's message? Well, his message is is the message. John's message is that God has sent us a very clear message. That's his message in John 1. And you know this text very well. And I just want to read a couple of verses of it before we, we dive in and we have uh, just spend a few minutes thinking about this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and in, that, and in the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory, 
Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, begot, only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained him. So, John is saying, I have a message for you. Um, the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity, what makes Christianity unique is that God has spoken, but he has spoken in person. John, so John sort of provides the clear dividing line because he presents a personal God who seeks relationship with humankind by becoming man. That's unique. That's not anywhere. Okay? So the Christian doctrine of the incarnation is what draws the very visible line in the sand that distinguishes. So Christmas is what separates it all, Christianity from everything. This time of year, what we see here, Christ is the dividing line. I like what C.S. Lewis said famously about the Christian faith. He said, we trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists. This God, unlike any other God. Now, let's see what it is about this God, okay? And we have to be very fast because we have very, very little time to get through a book. And let me just tell you something about John 1, 1 to 18. I've been looking at it for two weeks. I cannot get my arms all the way around it. I couldn't possibly have. You know, I, I read somewhere where uh, John Piper, scholar in his own right, pastor, scholar, uh, studying in Germany in 1974, and he was taking a class on the book of John, the Gospel of John. And the professor died right before the class started. So from Basel, they brought to Munich Oscar Coleman, great scholar Oscar Coleman, to teach the class. And it was 18 weeks long. He spent the first 13 weeks in John 1 to 14. John 1, 1 to 14. So it made me feel better about Mark. It made me feel a lot better about Mark, okay? Which I've been mocked plenty for that. Okay, uh, so you say, how in the world do we wrap our arms around this? And I just want to show you something quick, and then I'll try to summarize all of the thoughts that I have to, so, so that we can see this in, in time. But I just want you to see two things. So here's studying the book of John. Here's the whole 18 verses. You know, I like you to see the whole text. You want to see the whole paragraph. All right? Uh, so you have... Uh, this is a really, really beautiful in this text. So you have Jesus described as the Word here in, up there. And this, is, by the way, is the only time Jesus is described as Word. It's the only time in the New Testament. And then down at the bottom you have, you know, in verse 18, where it says that this Word, this begotten of God, has explained him. So we've got this communication thing going on. This is, the me this is a message from God. Ends up being who... Jesus is. Now, in this whole text right here, John uses two literary devices that we're going to use just to help guide us for this week and next week. Uh, and the first one comes in verses 1 and 2, and then in the entire section, 1, 1 to 18. And they, I've shown them to you before. It's called the chiasm, which is really just sort of a staircase parallelism. So verses 1 and 2 actually look like this in the chiasm. They look like this. So, A and A, B and B, so you see the parallelism. 
in, in, a, in, in a one or two verse, it's literally word, just a word or two or three. All right, so in verses 1 to 18, it looks like this, an entire paragraph. This section matches this section. This section, B and B match, C and C match. And you say, what's the point of doing that? Well, one section's going to just, maybe in fewer words, going to add a little something to the principle in B. This B will add a little bit of something to this B. This C adds a little something to this C. But the point of both of them is the angle, is the middle. The middle becomes the critical. It's what everything is pointing to. So in both of them, you have sort of a middle right here. So there's your second middle. Here's your first middle. Your first middle is, what's he like? Is the nature of God. That's it. This is what we learn about the Word. What we learn about the Word, something about God we wouldn't have known. Okay? And then in the second one, we learned something he did. Now, I can't show it to you as critical, but if you looked at it by sentence, you would see that out of this D here comes one phrase, and that is, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So if we use John's two literary devices, we basically get two center points, two center points in this text. Number one, it's going to tell us something about the nature of God, and number two, something incredible he has done for man. Those are your two points. Now, all I have time for today is uh, just to look at the first one, just a little bit about the nature of God. So in verses 1 and 2, so let's do, we're going to look at this one first, right here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. That's verses 1 and 2. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. What is this? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. So uh, just real quickly, if you were to, there's a definite correlation in verses 1 to 5 to creation. In other words, he wants you to think of Genesis when you see this phrase right here. And so if you read he, the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1-1, you're going to see in the beginning, and the next word is going to be what? God. But here, you're going to get word. So right from the very beginning, whatever word is, it's already interchangeable with God. Because John wants you to see something about the nature of of Jesus, that no other cult or religion is going to see. None of them are. It's unparalleled what he says in this verse. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, how do you know he's really pointing to Genesis there? This is how you know. That's one, okay, but this is how you know. When you get to verse 3, look what he's going to talk about, creation. So, he's not going to leave it right away. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. So these are all from Genesis. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Here's your three phrases that come right out of Genesis 1. So you know that's what he's talking. He wants you to think creation. Why? Why does he want you to do that? Because this word, this word that's in the beginning... 
not only created life, but some other new kind of creation is about to happen. Some other new, incredibly miraculous, powerful, creative event is about to happen. And whatever it is, the world has become dark again, and it needs light. So word gives way to light. Same thing, enlightenment. Something's going to communicate. And John uses the image of light, and he'll... he'll Use that image through the rest of his book. And so what you're seeing is some, God's about to speak again. He spoke the world into existence. He's about to speak again. He's about to act in an incredibly creative way, parallel to the first creation. There's something profound in that. Just the creation of getting you here and now parallel to that, redeeming us. Something that overwhelmingly miraculous will have to happen to redeem humankind, let alone to create it. Now, here is the real punch of this verse. In the beginning was the Word, and here's what we learn. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is incredibly important because what we're seeing is that we're seeing they're distinguished. They're together in some relational way, distinctive, and at the same time, the very, of the very same essence. All right? You have just moved into a realm. You have just moved into a realm with those words that no other cult or religion possesses. He was with God, and at the same time, he was God. So, exact same essence. In other words, Jesus has all the attributes of God. So, he's with God. So, this preposition in relationship uh, doesn't mean that they just, this, this word right here, with God, which, which he will repeat again in verse 2, so it's important. He's distinct from God. But the, but the preposition doesn't suggest that there are two gods, they're in a close, intimate relationship with one another, but of the same essence. So they're not, so they're two different. They're distinct, but of the same essence. Now, the preposition idea is that they're face to face. Okay? Uh, when John chapter 17, when Jesus prays, Lord, after, you know, glorify me now. Glorify me now. I look forward to the glory that I'm going to share with you again when I'm with you face to face again. So it, it communicates intimate relationship. Okay? It doesn't just mean that they coexisted. You know, uh, that they're uh, together in the same place. He's there too. I'm here and you're there. It's not just that. It's an intimate sort of uh, connection. Uh, same thing in verse 18. We learn a little bit about why about how close they are. Remember, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, which the text makes clear, who is in the bosom of the Father. That's an idiom. That's in the Father's lap, basically. It's an idiom for the closest possible intimate relationship you can have. Not very many people are allowed in your lap. Not very many people. Would you be comfortable with someone putting their head on your chest? 
That kind of closeness. Not very many people can do that. This is the intimate kind of closeness. So John is saying they are not just there together. They are intimate. So relationship becomes. That's where we get our trinity. This is the beginning of the trinity, that they are one God but three persons. Okay? You don't have a religion or a cult that, 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 that sees God in this way. Okay? Uh, this sort of, they, they all reject the threeness that comes out of this. You don't just have two separate kind of gods that are competing against each other. Um, they're, they're one, and the rest of the Gospel of John makes that clear. That means we're not Unitarian. Uh, we're not Sibelianists. We're not modalists. We don't believe that God um, will act like Jesus sometimes. He will act like the Spirit sometimes. He will act like the Father sometimes. We, we're, that's modalism. That's Unitarianism. Um, so that's, that's not how we're seeing this. And I want to show you why that's important. And you'll see it in just a second. But even the cults, uh, so for Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, both see Jesus as a created being. And see, what you have in John 1 to 5 is that Jesus was there at the beginning creating. If he was in the beginning, that means he was prior to creation. He already existed. That's the pre-existence of Jesus. Okay? So I think in Mormonism, you know, Jesus created, he's the brother of Adam, he's the brother of Lucifer. So neither one of them. Now, they're God-makers, so they see Jesus eventually becomes God, but he doesn't start out as God, he's created by God. Okay, so you, have, you end up in Mormonism with a sort of a polytheism. You, 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 you move away from monotheism, which is one God, to a sort of multi-gods. We, we all become gods. Uh, and Jehovah's Witness, they create. So they're the ones who believe that when they read John 1.1, 1, 1, um, they put a little A in here. They put a little, he was, or uh, here it is. He was a God. All right, which, and I, I don't have time to go into Caldwell's rule in grammar. I don't have time to tell you why grammatically that's not likely at all and why theologically John would, could never uh, doesn't, and the rest of his book doesn't say it, and why John would never call Jesus a God. He was a Jew. He was a hardcore monotheistic or, uh, in his position. So he would have never seen God like that. Uh, so that's not possible at all. So you have all these other, but you do have, you might argue, you might say, hey, there's a couple other religions that are monotheistic. Okay, there are Judaism and Islam. But they're not monotheistic in the way that Jesus is. In fact, each one of them would tell you they're not monotheistic like anyone else's. So Christianity's monotheism is different. It's unique, and I want to argue that it's provocative. It's completely different. To have one God and three persons suggests something completely different about who God is, his love, and his creation. So in Islam, there's no way, because the Quran would, would never argue that God would become human. Um, in fact, I read something this week about in the Quran that um, to believe that Jesus was God could get you sent to hell in Islam. So their idea of uh, oneness is not 
It's, it's non-Trinitarian. It's not three in one. It's just one. All right? Um, Judaism is very similar in the respect that uh, God is one, but he's not Trinity. So Jesus is not God. We know that that's, I mean, the Jews, in this very text, John will say he came to his own and his own rejected him. They didn't see him as God at all. So uh, in the cults, you have to become God if you're Jesus. In the religions, like even the monotheistic ones, he's not God to begin with. So that's, that raises some questions about God's love. How does God love and what's the story? And by the way, becoming a God is just, it, by definition, illogical. Okay, this is the struggle with the, with the cults. Of the, they, they want you to believe that you're going to become a God. It's just, by definition, illogical. You can't create God. They believe God created a God. God can't create a God. If it's created, it isn't, by definition, God. Okay, so it's just, it's just not logical. Uh, because God, by definition, is self-existent. That's why John says, in the beginning. All right, so uh, what does the non-Trinitarian religions, like Islam or but monotheistic but non-Trinitarian believe? They lose, what, what, what is the, the love? So in, in uh, Islam, uh, al-Ghazali right under Muhammad in terms of his position, says Allah is above the feeling of love. So in the few instances where the Quran will speak about love, it's really reserved just for the people that have earned it, that have really shined. Okay? So there's only certain ones that are lovable. In Judaism, the love of God is expressed mostly by creation and sort of entering a covenant relationship but he can't be described as love. Love has to sort of be manufactured in a different other way. You couldn't say God is love if he's only one. This is where the Trinity is so provocative. To be three persons in one means God exists in love, which is you can say God is love. You can't say that in any other one. So the expression of love in the other religions and cults falls way short of what Christianity is arguing. So Jesus is, uh, so God is not just loving, he is love. In other words, he is its origin and its essence. Cannot, cannot be true unless you envision God as a trinity. Because a solitary God cannot love. You've got to be in relationship. That's the importance of this with God in relationship already. A solitary God could learn to love, right? He may want to love, but he can't be called love. He can't be the essence of love because it requires relationship. So if God is a trinity, then we, then we see love as part of the fabric of all reality. Anything God does, whether he creates or whether he redeems, he's going to do it in the context of relationship. And I think that's true. We can all, I think, resonate with a God who created us, and we all long for relationships. So we see it in creation. We can see it in redemption as Christ himself comes here. So a loving relationship is bound up in the very nature 
of God. Fred Sanders said, gospel and trinity have the same shape. The good news of salvation is that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. So the, the very physical structure of the universe is love and relationship. See, for the Jews, uh, Jesus or God stopped speaking as soon as Malachi was written, as soon as the last Old Testament book was written. And, you know, we have this 400 years of silence, and then the New Testament be- begins. And John starts the gospel with the word. God breaks the silence with Jesus. But if you're a Jew or you're an Orthodox Jew, okay, and you don't see that, then, you, then God has not said a word since the Old Testament closed. There has been no word. So you can see it completely different. I mean, if you read the rest of John, you will see at some point Jews finally get to the end of their rope with, with Jesus Christ. So in 114, you get the highest possible religious philosophical thought you can possibly get. I just want to show you this fast, just for, for the sake of time. And this is it right here. And the word, this communication device, this person, as we're going to see, because John hasn't unveiled him yet. It's not until verse 17 he tells you it's Jesus. The word became flesh. That is the single, unique, overwhelming, if that's true, listen, if that's true, you don't have to have another philosophical thought in your whole life about what meaning is, about who God is, about attaining anything, because it came to you. You didn't have to figure it out. It came to you. So it's the end of philosophy. He dwelt among us. This was always his goal, was to be among us. And we beheld his glory. We could spend, listen, Hillside, forever here. The glory is of the only begotten Father. Look what he's full of, full of grace and truth. What does that mean? What does that look like? For of his fullness we have all received. We've all received. It's an important word. We're going to see it next week. Why it's important in verses Uh, 12 and 13. What did we get? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Just stacks of grace. Stacks of grace in this picture of who God is. So the Jesus of John 1 is not the Jesus of the cults. And he's not the Jesus of other religions. Even the monotheistic ones radically different. What does this word do? What does it do in verse 17? It replaces Judaism. For the law was given through Moses. He's the the head honcho of Judaism. Grace and truth were realized, came to fulfillment. There he is, named for the very first time in Christ. In other words, we're not only leaving philosophy, we're leaving religion. You don't need religion either because grace and truth are realized in a person. That's what John is saying. Distinct, new, fresh. Unparalleled. Unparalleled. So you got a, a world of people looking for revelation, looking for access to the mysteries of reality, the mysteries of life. And John says they all come up short. And uh, notice what he says in verse 18. No one has seen God. 
the only begotten God, that's Jesus, the Son, the one and only, who is in the bosom of the Father, the, only the person absolutely the closest to him and of his same essence could come down here and explain this. Christ is the explanation of the nature of God. What does it scream? What is he screaming? What is the word screaming at us in this text? Because it is screaming something. Because if James Montgomery or John Montgomery said, uh, of, of the word became flesh, and I think it's true of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave there it is, that one and only Son. So word gives way to the relationship of the Son. The highest philosophical, religious, spiritual thinking you can ever have is that God would become flesh, and the motivation of that was that he loved the world. That's why he did it. There is no love picture, no love language in any other religion or cult that comes close to matching this. It's unparalleled. The ma- <laughs> now, what is what are the three? I want to, I've got I've got three minutes, so I'm going to take. I just because I think you, you've got to hear this. All right, so um, I want you to hear this, and I just want to tell you what's so what. Just want to give you three so what's. All right. First, I want to read something to you in Hebrews 1. It, when you, whenever you read John 1, 1, you need to have in the margin Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Okay? Because here's what John says, or Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways. That's Old Testament. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. There's the relationship of speaking and creation again. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay, so there you have God has spoken. God has spoken. Listen, what Christmas needs to remind us of Because right now in our culture and in our time, more and more, God is becoming more and more silent. And we all wish God would say something. I bet you're sitting here today, and I'll bet there's something you wish God would say to you. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. God has spoken clearly. He can't be any clearer than in his son. And I think he he has said three things that will apply to this congregation right here and right now. Number one. This is fast. I'm only going to do, I got 45 seconds for each one of them. Here we go. The first one is Jesus Christ comes full of grace and truth. You, and this is where you find grace and you find forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you, you might not realize this. This is one of the worst things about humanity is sometimes we don't realize that our biggest problem is that we are the problem. And in Christianity, God tells you that. That's why he's full of grace and truth. God is not going to lighten the standard. He's going to be real. He's not going to change himself 
in order to accommodate mankind's sin. But he's also full of grace. In fact, John says, when Jesus comes, grace just comes in waves. It just keeps on coming. It's like stacks of grace and forgiveness for anything I've done. Some of us are haunted, haunted by the things that we have done or haven't done. And here's what John 1 is saying. God is screaming. Christ took care of it. That's the first thing. Full of grace and truth. He's not lowering the standard to accommodate your guilt. At the same time, though, what is going to come is at the cross. He's going to take in grace. That's the uniqueness of this God. If you see God the way John 1 sees him, then you see salvation and grace in a completely different way. You can't talk about waves of grace in any other cult or any other religion like you can after you read John 1. Forgiveness. Second. Infinite comfort in suffering. Camus, uh, insightful critic of Christianity. If God came to earth... You may not know the reason why you're in pain right now. You may not know the reason you're in pain right now, but here's what we do know. We know what it can't be. We know what the reason can't be, and it can't be because he doesn't care. If he, were t- if he came here, he absolutely cares. You may not see all of the reason behind it at this point right now, but I got to tell you, my prayer, list, my prayer list is kind of on a rotation. I wake up with the pain of the people in this congregation. Every single morning. And every day comes a new pain. And I just rotate your names through this little conveyor belt in my head. I can hardly, sometimes, literally hardly, sometimes breathe. Because I can't believe what some of you are going through. And John 1 just reminds me. God's with them. They may not feel it. God's with them. He definitely cares. And that's the greatest thing we can offer. One another. It's the highest spiritual thought. You're not going to get it anywhere else. That he's definitely with you. And it isn't because he doesn't care that you're hurting. The cross won't let you have that. I, I, I can't say anymore. I want to do some more quotes, but I don't have time. That's the second one. I, he's with you in your pain. And I've been dying to tell you that for about six weeks. And finally, and this is very fast, um, what more powerful incentive in the world is there to, to care about, serve, love, and connect with others? than the fact that God himself did that. The very nature of himself that would bring him him here. The very nature of God himself, out of it comes service, that he's willing to break that Trinitarian love for a time. And what's beautiful about John uh, in this section here, and I had this old text up here, is you have him with God up here in verse 1 and 2, and then you have him with God here again. 
So you have him with God here, and you have him with God here. But everything in between is about him coming here. And you can see it in different ways. You just read the language. I don't have time to show you, but you just read the language. Of all of the language of God being here, he was here, and then he went back to the Father. What would bring him here? This incredible love. But the fact that he would do that, what does Philippians 2 say? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider it like something to hold on to, but he became a man, he became obedient unto death, became a servant. Listen, this Christmas, I'm going to tell you, you say, I want to be like that God. You've got to put others first. We have got to put others first. I don't know about you, but December 3rd, 2017, I needed to hear that. It's not about me. About every week we could use a good reminder of that, right? And even as we go into this month, who became more vulnerable than him? Who became more of a servant than him? I was listening to an atheist debate uh, on this other guy that I really like a lot. And uh, this atheist was the, was, the, was the best I've ever heard. He gave the best arguments you could ever possibly have. Uh, you, should, you should know he didn't convince me. I mean, I just want to tell you, he, did, he didn't convince me. Okay, but he gave the best arguments I've ever heard. And the guy, the guy def- defending the faith was just marvelous, just marvelous in handling him. And he finally looked at the atheist and he said, but he, said, he just said, just ask yourself deep down in your soul, even if you don't believe it, don't you want to? Don't you want to? And the atheist was, he, he said, yeah, I'd love for that to be true. And I was just saying, that's the kind of God John presents that we have going into this Christmas season. I, I, I don't even have time to summarize. He'll say, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's amazing. We, and not just your word spoken, but your, your son who came in the flesh to explain this to us. It's overwhelming. We love it, and, and we're grateful. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.